On behalf of the people of St. Luke's Church and its clergy, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and remind all of us that wherever we find ourselves on our spiritual pilgrimage, we are welcome. Tonight I want to preach about some, some theological issues first. I hope I don't get too abstruse, but you'll bear with me if I do. And then I want to speak about the four affirmations that I always talk about uh, during Christmas, during the 12 days of Christmas, and why they're so important. But to say something, too, as a commercial message about uh, the Episcopal Church, you know, a lot of things that we do in the Episcopal Church these days, uh, for many, is counterintuitive because we're supposed to be living in a, a different age than the one in which we find ourselves. But Episcopalians uh, have always believed that it was a good idea, this may astound you, to be uh, minimally demanding with regard to how people uh, operate in the Christian faith and life. And so I'll say it now, I may repeat myself, but you need to ask yourself in terms of your own spiritual growth and development, would you prefer to be a pickle or a Pop-Tart? <laughs> right? Would you rather marinate in God's grace and understand the show's slow, steady work of the Holy Spirit within each of you as bringing you to some species of spiritual maturity or would you hope that you would have some form of conversion experience that would fry you to a crisp and forever make you remain that way? <laughs> you see, to me, that's counterintuitive, <laughs> to be a Pop-Tart. So you're not going to hear from me a commercial message for being a Pop-Tart, but a pickle. Maybe a good plan. Christmas is the second post that was driven into the liturgical year. The first one was the celebration of Easter and the preparatory seasons that grew around it, and then Christmas and the pre preparatory seasons that grew around it. And it is not so much a theological feast, as it, or rather a historical feast, as it is a theological feast, because it is speaking about the great mystery of God becoming a human being. And how do we understand what that means? And by extension, how we now participate in the ways and the means of being God's people in the world. You know, in Anglicanism, in, in, in the Episcopal Church, there have been two distinct threads that have run through its history with regard to how it understands salvation. The first one is the view that what the teaching and life of Jesus uh, meant was that we would be led through understanding him as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, as it says in the epistle to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. How we understand that, and how by virtue of that we now participate in the divine life. So when I get to the affirmations, I'll have something to say about humanity and its importance because Jesus was a human being, just like you and me, just like you and me. But those who saw him and those who heard him said, 
If God were walking around on the earth, this is what he would be like. And we're not merely watching some tableau, but we have been given tools that we can use. And by virtue of that, his example is something now that provides us with the ways and the means of becoming what we already are, made in God's image and likeness. The second view is that salvation is viewed as atonement made by Christ for us. The difference, of course, is viewing the world as, uh, as salvation as God's uh, renewing of the world, transformation of the world, or responding to God's divine wrath. You choose which one you want because they both have been present in this tradition, right? Do we want to live a life that will inure ourselves against God's wrath? Or do we want to be given the tools by which we live into the life of transformation, growth, new life, whatever Nuevo Huevo term you want to use to describe it? So when we speak about the nature of the incarnation, which is what this is in fancy theological terms, my morals and ethics professor in seminary said incarnation means in the meat. To put it graphically. In the original languages. And he speaks in the, and he used to speak about the fact that somehow some transformative work has taken place. Father Thomas Keating, one of my favorites, uh, said about Jesus that the incarnation involved Jesus assuming the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. But he also introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God-consciousness. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh, but also introduced the principle of redemption from all of the pre-rational programs for happiness that center around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Those things are with us every day, all day long. And so you and I have to spend our lives figuring out how in some way to keep these in healthy tension with one another because we need them. But when they get off the rails, we know where we go with regard to those kinds of things. So Father Keating goes on to say that when we hear the term flesh used in the Bible, there are two words in Greek that are used. One is sarx and the other one is soma. Sarx refers to the human condition closed in on itself, fallen and not interested in rising. It is the human condition committed to biological survival for its own sake or for the sake of the clan, tribe, nation, or race. The Greek word soma refers to the body insofar as it is open to further evolution. It is the human condition open to development. 
The word was made flesh. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Christmas Day. Signifies that by taking the human condition upon himself with all its consequences, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence. So Episcopalians have understood this and they understand this tension that has been uh, existed with regard to how we think about God becoming a human being and what's needful for us. Henry Chadwick, a great historian of the early Christian church, uh, said in, a, in an essay that I really like, uh, he said, in short, the central Christian tradition affirms that human, humankind is not so good as to need no redemptive grace and not so bad as to be unable to benefit from divine aid and the deep therapy of sacramental grace. And the deep therapy of sacrament. So if you say to yourself, why in the world do people keep coming to church all the time? The deep therapy of sacramental grace. I've said this many times. When I was a younger priest, more insufferable than I am now. <laughs> people would come out the door and at the end of the Mass and they would say, you know, Father Brewer, I'm not sure whether I believe the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood or how that all works. All I know is that when I come to church and I receive Holy Communion, I feel better. Good. I finally came to this. I used to pull myself up at my full height and say, yeah, but you know, wait a minute, you really just can't say that. There's a lot of important... Re da, 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 da. Right? No. I want happy. <laughs> I want people to feel good. So maybe it's an important thing to understand the deep therapy of sacramental grace. So the four affirmations... Every year I talk about them in Chris, on Christmas. They're these. The goodness of our humanity. The affirmation that in Christ we can achieve the highest of our human potential. The affirmation that it is possible to be joyful. And the affirmation that Christian people are to be people of peace. So let's take the goodness of our humanity and think about what that might mean. When we talk about the goodness of our humanity, uh, there is a famous early father of the Christian church that said, God became man that we might become God. Father Thomas Keating, who I just mentioned, said, we are not God, but our true self is God. So when we understand that, it means, well, I'm a human being. Jesus was a human being. You know, if we went uh, fast, uh, I don't know, rewound ourselves and got back into the uh, first century Palestine with Jesus and wanted to talk to him about NASA and the space program, he would not know what you were talking about. Not a clue. Not a clue. And somebody said, well, he was God. He could dream, he would knew everything. No, he was a human being. 
That's the whole point of this, right? So you and I may have to rework our understanding rather than popular piety, what it means when we speak of divinity and how we understand what that might mean. So when we think about the goodness of our humanity, we need to affirm the fact that what it says in Genesis might have a ring of truth when it said God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. Each one of us is indeed very good. That is the default position. The goodness of our humanity. How we understand what that might mean. Achieving, we can achieve the highest of our human potential. This is not some sort of human potential movement kind of thing uh, at all. I have to tell you this, I just will file it by title. When I was director of Christchurch Sausalito, I met Warner Earhart. Remember him? <laughs> Est. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about. It means that we were made for a purpose, that we were called to respond to being made in God's image, and that we accomplish God's work by modeling what it means to be the best human beings we can be. And this is worked out in the ordinary and commonplace activities of our lives where we are able to bring serenity, clarity, integrity, and generosity to all aspects of our relational life. It's not only what we have the potential to do, it's what we're called to do. It's the natural predisposition of the human person to extend. Some years ago, Bill Moyers had a show with Houston Smith, the great expert on the world's great faith traditions. And he said, Houston, how would you know if you are making any kind of spiritual progress at all? And he said, all of the faith, great faith traditions teach that the one infallible test for knowing that you might have made some spiritual progress is that you have noticed in yourself an increase in generosity. You have seen an increase in your willingness to extend. And by virtue of that, you have realized that you are not the center of the universe. It's somewhere else. One of our parishioners at St. Luke's told a story a number of years ago about when he was in young work life. His boss called him into his office and he had a, a uh, easel with newsprint on it. And he said, so-and-so, and drew a big circle. This is the universe. And then he took the felt-tip pen and he put it right in the center of the circle and he said, this is the center of the universe. And then he put a little X on the outside of the circle and said, this is you. <laughs> So maybe achieving the highest of our human potential has something uh, to do with realizing that might be the case.
the affirmation that we can be joyful and are called to be joyful. You know, joy in Christian terms means that the uncertainties, the ambiguities, the conundrums of life can and will come into surer and clearer focus for us as we get some clarity about God's will and purpose for us. Things that were baffling before become a little less baffling. Things are be a little less ambiguous. Uh, things that we became anxious about, we become less anxious about. The problems become a little bit more manageable. They don't go away, but maybe you can manage them a little bit better. And so somehow in that regard, you realize that it's possible to be joyful. For years, I had two problems. One of them was to think joy meant, when you said you were joyful, that it was like Snoopy in the cartoon. You know, giddy hilarity, right? Or I mistook joy, for, I, I, I misunderstood joy. I thought it was synonymous with euphoria, right? And that wasn't true either. And finally, Christian people are to be people of peace. And <clears throat> I'm not going to trot out all of the hackneyed phrases about the importance of peace. But boy, if there was ever a time in this world where we need peace, it's now. For sure. When Jesus uh, would preach and teach, he wouldn't use peace, he would use shalom. And shalom is, is a word that has many meanings. In English, we only have one where we have peace, you know. It's like in India, dharma doesn't mean dharma, it means a bunch of things, right? So peace can mean, in Hebrew, completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. The shalom of God is both a willingness to bring these qualities to our relational life but also to bring them to bear on our own internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states such that we are able to be centered in God's love and care. So as you continue through the 12 days of Christmas, think about these affirmations and how you can be an ambassador for all that is highest and best of our goodness, our humanity, our joy, and peace in the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We are ambassadors for God since God is making his appeal through us. So let's see how we're doing. Amen.